Welcome to Millennial Minds with activist, model, preacher, and public figure, Yasmeen Yazzie Speaks Arrington. Definitely have the voice of the young people in mind. Join her as she sits down with artists, content creators, business owners, and community activists to get their stories. We'll hear the millennial perspective straight from the crafters of the culture sculpting our today and tomorrow. And now here's your host, Yazzie Speaks. You are listening to DC Radio on 96.3 HD4 and online on dcradio.gov. This is your girl Yazzie Speaks on another episode of Millennial Minds. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Mr. Desmond Williams, founder and CEO of Nylinka School Solutions, educator, husband and father, and author of the book, The Burning House, Educating Black Boys in America. Desmond, how are you today? Yes, me. How are you doing? Happy, happy Sunday evening to you. Happy Sunday to you as well. I'm so excited to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you so much for for giving of your time and your yeah. expertise. Yes, yeah, it's, it's like uh, um, we've we've been trying to get together for a while. We've we've been plotting this like uh, like secret lovers or something. It took us a while <laughs> to get this together. Yeah. Now that I think about it. Over a year. Yeah, it's It's, been a while. It's it's good to be with you. Absolutely, absolutely. Good to be with you and your audience. Yes, I'm very excited. So Desmond, without further ado, please give us a snapshot of of you. Where were you born and raised? And tell us more deeply about you and who you are and what you do. Thank you for the question. I am a, a career educator. I was born in Detroit, Michigan. And I'm a what you would call an 80s baby came to Howard University and decided not to go back to Detroit, at least not to live. So I did my undergraduate at Howard. I'm a proud Howard alumni. H-U? H-U. You know, I wanted to work in education. So after working for a nonprofit, I became a teacher, um, working with special needs kids. And Mm -hmm. I did that for some time and moved into special education administration. And then I ultimately ended up becoming a principal after 17, 18 years of, uh, of total service. In 2018, I launched my link of school solutions. My career was bookended, if you will, by being a special education teacher in the hood, which ultimately makes you a de facto teacher of boys. Mm. And then I spent six years at an all boys school here in the district. So I've, I've always had a, a love and concern for black boys professionally, but even, you know, reflecting upon my experiences growing up where so many of my, my male friends did not make it, whatever it is, they didn't make it. So um, I've always been passionate in that space. Um, it's part of the reason why I went into education and um, I, I launched my company in 2018, thinking about the students I had served and, you know, some of the, the boys in the hood, if you will, my mm-hmm. friends and my brothers who I grew up with, um, thinking about how we can make a more, uh, a more sustainable system to support their needs and their wants and their dreams. Wow, that's deep. Very, very deep, but I hear what you're saying, and 
Um, that's very real, especially for Black men in America, even though I'm not a Black man, <laughs> I'm a Black woman. And um, just having conversations with with Black boys, Black young men um, and men over the years, um, being reflective over, over their life's journey and realizing that there are a lot of brothers that, as you said, didn't make it, whatever it is, right? You know, maybe some of them passed away. Maybe some of them got caught up in in the, you know, and you grew up in the 80s. And so you're familiar with the drug war in that era and how crazy it was, especially in inner cities, you know, even in D.C. Yeah. that was happening. And um, just there's so many things people could have gotten into or places they could have ended up. And so it's so profound that you are, you know, a proponent of of dreams. And so we'll definitely get into that and get more into your passion for education, um, particularly for young Black boys. But on on this note, what was your childhood and upbringing like uh, in, in, as, a, as a young Black boy in, um, or Black boy in Detroit? Uh, how, how do you think that contributed to the person that you are today in your purview of the world you know, your outspokenness, your leadership, your tenacity and your creativity, all of those things, you know, just share with us some more about how, how it was growing up for you. You know, I, that's a, it's an interesting question because for me, I think my growing, growing up in Detroit and the time that I was born was, was anchored by a Reagan presidency it was anchored by um, Desert Storm. Um, it was it was anchored by the drug war, which, you know, in in very strict terms, is the Reagan presidency mm. from a from a black perspective. I think it was also anchored by the growth and the burgeoning of hip hop, and it was also anchored by uh, the Million Man March. Mm. I think that swirl of events um those you know kind of happenings like ultimately are part of the concoction of, of who i am like i grew up in a household with a father my, my parents are still married but i remember i know like most of my friends did not and i just remember many of my friends were losing family members to um, drug use, drug abuse, drug selling, and you know it it just ravaged our communities. Um, at at the time, you don't really see it that way. You just see it as you know you're trying to make sense of it, and and I think that's part of the reason why hip hop was so important for me growing up because it was an art form that was um, allowing us to make meaning of the things that were happening around us, mm. whether it be public enemy or whether it be a, a big daddy cane or ice cube or NWA, they were, as, as we used to call public enemy, the CNN of the streets, helping, <laughs> us, I like helping that. us, helping us make meaning of the things that we were seeing, but also giving that information from our point of view. So, I think the other thing that I would mention is I, I I was accepted at Howard University and I wasn't able to come in 1995 because my father was in the process of having an open heart surgery. Mm. Um, so I deferred until the fall of 1996, but I was able to come to D.C. 
for the Million Man March in uh, October of 1995. And it just blew my mind because with all of the death and the destruction and the crime and growing up in what I would term a war zone in Detroit, the Million Man March was my first opportunity to be around Black men and not be afraid. And at that point, I was like, I'm definitely, I was like, I'm coming Howard. Um, at that point, Howard could have been an all, an all male school. I was just hell bent on having a black college experience. So I came to Howard in 1995. I think for the purposes of your question, the rest is kind of history, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. What drew you to uh, come to the Million Man March? What did Were any of your friends going or, or you just like what what drew you to to come? So, in, in retrospect, a lot of people I knew didn't go, but in my very small world, everyone was going, right? Like I had uh, terrible grades in high school, which is an entirely different story that maybe we'll get into. But I was in junior college and at a, at a junior college outside of Detroit, and everybody was talking about going. Every church had buses. Every after-school program was sending folks to the Million Man March, and I wanted to go. And my friends were like, yo, just just ride with us. And they were like, you wanted to go to Howard anyway. You didn't get to go. You might as well at least come go see the campus. So A, it was a lot of people wanted to go. My father was encouraging me to go, even though he wasn't physically able to make the trip. But I just wanted to go out of curiosity, I think, more 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 so than anything. I was I was curious to see. I didn't really have any expectations of what the event would be emotionally or or spiritually or even politically. I, w- I was just really curious. And it was just a light bulb or flashpoint moment in terms of what I thought it meant for me and how I related to supporting and and being of help um, to the Black community. Wow, that's powerful. Desmond, there's a... Left you uh, speechless, uh, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally. I, there's a lot going through my mind, right? Especially growing up in D.C. And I went across the... Uh, when I was going to high school, I went to Banneker, Mm-hmm. which at the time, of course, was right across the street from Howard University. And so I was passing Howard every every day. And yeah. I knew that I wanted to have um, the H, quote unquote, you know, the HBCU, the Black college experience. The way I, I encountered it was a little different. I went, I ended up going to a PWI uh, mm-hmm. to study communications, um, a university, like a liberal arts college in North Carolina. And then I came back home. I already knew I was going to come back, came back home and pursued my master of divinity at Howard. But I, 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 I can only imagine, like, I'm just trying to visualize and put myself in what, what DC, like what that looked like. Cause I've, I've only seen photos and, you know, video clips of the Million Man March. Um, but it was definitely, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, it was a, a very pivotal moment in America and a pivotal moment for, for, you know, for black people in this. Yeah. And, and I think it makes, I'm, I'm going to 
humor me for a second. It makes the um, the Bill Cosby situation that much sadder because because of the Cosby show in a different world. Like I was in high school. Those were like developmental. That was a developmentally um, malleable time in my life and watching a different world every Thursday I love that show. Oh my goodness. Made, made the black college experience sexy and attractive, right? I like, see. Like Dwayne Wade, I mean Dwayne Wade, <laughs> Dwayne Wayne grew up <laughs> and became Dwayne Wade. Like he was, and I was like, you know, that could, I used to tell my friend Alejandro, like that could be us. Like we could end up with Whitley. <laughs> Like that, those were the conversations we, we used it. to have. Like we could end up with Whitley. Like if we don't get Denise, we can get Whitley. <laughs> and I, I think we, and when I say we, I mean my generation. We, um, we undersell the importance of the Cosby Show in a different world. Just that one hour a week, um, when so much of our television was, you know. Cheers and Family Ties and Mr. Belvedere and, and all of these other whitewash shows with, with no representation mm. of, of 12% of the population. I, those shows were very impactful. Like when you talk about like, like what was it like growing up in Detroit? Like what was it, what was it like being a teenager in the early 1990s? So I think, you know, the only other school I wanted to go to was Michigan, and that was because of the football team. And there was no way I was ever going to play football. <laughs> so the, the HBCU experience, I mean, for me, Hillman and Temple were historically black colleges. We just didn't know any better. And then when we found out, we wished Hillman was a real school, and we wished Temple, right, was a <laughs> was an HBCU. So. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really deep. Thank you for sharing that. There's this uh, pastor. He pastors a church in um, in Virginia. Uh, His name is Reverend Howard John Wesley. And he did a a sermon Mm -hmm. series not too long ago. It was sometime this year. And it was around, he he literally talked about this, the the impact that the Cosby show had on on young black people and black families that were growing up in in that era. So it's just really interesting to hear you talk about that and I, I mean I watched them at another time, you know, in the late later 90s and early 2000s like I was, you know, watching watching reruns and all. But it but just to think about it, it really does have an impact and so speaking of you know the images that you see and 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 impact and and ideas and impressions. Um, there's a very interesting story behind how you came up with Nylinka, and the name itself for your yeah. company, for your consulting company. Can you share that with us? Yeah. So um, I think that the the best way to describe it is um, I was I was being picked up by some friends to go shopping. It was like the beginning of our, our senior year in high school. And, uh, there's a kid who lived on my street. He was probably 10 or 11, but, um, I was, I was waiting on my friends to pick me up and he was outside playing with matchbox cars, which, you know, all, all boys do, all kids do growing up in Detroit. And, uh, I just sat down next to him. We were talking for a few minutes 
And uh, he was like, yeah, like these are my cars. And I was like, yo, I used to love Matchbox cars when I was a kid. And he just like paused, stopped, he got up and he ran into his apartment and he came out, he came outside with this sketchbook. And uh, he was like, yo, these are, these are my cars. And he's flipping through this like tattered um, notebook and he has all of these pictures of these cars. And I was like, yo, like who, who drew these? He was like, I drew them. He was like, this is what I be doing at school. And I said, yo, these drawings are like, he had SUVs, Yasmin, before we had SUVs, right? That's amazing. And he was like, yeah, everybody's going to be driving these one day. And he said, I'm going to own my own car company and it's going to be called Nylinka. And I was like, yo... I don't know what's better, like the cars you're drawing, your sketches, or the or the name of the company. And uh, that was the second to last time that I saw him. And needless to say, there is no Nylinka car group. Um, but when I was thinking of a name for for my organization, it was just too self-serving to you know call it the Williams Consulting Group or goofy stuff like that. Um, <laughs> I think Nylinka was, Nylinka is the, the best name because it represents the hopes and dreams of all people, but in particularly the uh, the hopes and dreams of, of Black boys in America. So that's, um, that's the long version of, of the story. Thank you, Desmond, for that. It's, it's, it's a beautiful story, and um, it's just very powerful. Uh, but the name is dope. Nylinka is really dope. And the name is amazing. the name is dope. Once you know how to pronounce it, right? <laughs> but it, and it's amazing that you remembered that all all those years later. So mm-hmm. it, I'm wondering, even based on this conversation, um, I, I know that you're big on dreams and helping young people believe in and pursue their dreams. As you quote in on your uh, website. Uh, student dreams reach, you know, helping students to reach uh, their dreams to reach full fruition. Um, where does your passion for cultivating dreamers come from? What and what inspired you to found Nylinka? So it, it it partially comes from a traumatic experience that I had in high school, and it it partially is fueled by. The fact that there is no Nylinka Motor Group, it, it's also fueled by the the Robert Nixes, the the Terrence and Arnold Matthews, the Maurice Rones, the Sheldon Blys, the D'Angelo Hardricks, all of the brothers that I grew up in the hood with, who came to a system rooted in white supremacy, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I represent, like I'm good, like I think I'm great. But I wasn't greater than all of them to the to the point that I get to be the only one, right? Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a, a mixture and a conjuring of, if you will, of of all of the attempts and the at bats that other black man, that other black men that I knew and looked up to and played with and broke bread with didn't actually get to have, you know. So like how do we like we were talking earlier about this notion of meaning making like how do we help black boys and 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 young black men 
create meaning in the world so that they can change it. If you can't make meaning of it, you can't change it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's the, what the problem is for a lot of us is we're trying to figure out what's happening. And in the process of trying to figure out what's happening, there is no change. So we have to, we have to engage in a meaning making. And then once you figure out what you're looking at, then you can start plotting a path to make changes right. to make like the how, world how uh, contribute. Yeah. Like then you figure out, okay, this is what we want it to look like. This is what we want it to be. Absolutely. Ditto to that. Absolutely. To be, you know, using your dreams to be a change agent in the world, but it can really definitely be discouraging, especially, I, I, I mean, there's, there's been so many, I mean, numerous, it gets so, so frequent, it's hard to count just some of the more blatant injustices that we've, that we've seen, I'd say over, you know, over our, the course of our lives, the last 20, 30, 40, 40 plus years. Um, and especially last year, what are we in 2021 and, and 2020 with the George Floyd case and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey and all of those uh, and, and, and just, seeing, yeah, I wonder like, you know, because you had your own set of, there, there were those moments when you were growing up and even, you know, when you were from a young, from a boy to, to, a, you know, a teenager to a young man at Howard, how do you, how, how do you feel or what does it feel like from your vantage point, seeing these things still happening and, and, and even like with the, the presidency, you know, of Donald Trump and just kind of just a very overt, <laughs> you know, direct racism and the strong comments and all, all of the backlash that seems to really have, have come out of what the Obama era and administration. And it, it just, in that time, I think for a lot of black people, it felt like, wow, you know, I think we really believed a lot of us that we were making progress, but we see where we are now. Like, how, how what what are your thoughts on that how does that how how does that make you feel seeing that now you know gen z the teenagers they're they're going through the some of the same things that you were going through 20 plus years ago so that was a man yeah i mean that was a real deep question you you going to be on here till 11 <laughs> o'clock at night as my grandmother used to say <laughs> but you know i think one of the other and I, I'm gonna get to your your answer in a very roundabout way. But one of the things that happened my my junior year in high school was the the police murder of a black male in Detroit named Malice Green. Mm-hmm. And um, if I recall, Malice Green was about nine or ten months before Rodney King, mm-hmm. but. Rodney King was was huge, and to the even to the point that I was remiss for not mentioning it earlier in terms of like events that shaped my world. I remember being at home and watching the news and watching the 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 actual raw video footage that the man had captured from his apartment, just showing like these police officers like literally 
beat him. But when you look at the footage of that, Yasmin, there are officers standing around doing nothing. Wow. Very similar to the lynchings that we often see in throughout uh, American history of, you know, white families, white males, white females and their children, like struggling to get in a picture with the black man hanging from a tree. Mm. So the the murders of a, a Breonna Taylor or an Ahmaud Aubrey or a Charles Mack Parker or an Emmett Till, George Floyd's death dovetails nicely into all of those deaths. His death is really no different. And as I I struggled to write the in, the new introduction, I'm I'm coming out with a second edition of the Burning House. And and this is why I really struggled because the first edition of the book, Yasmin, came out right before COVID hit, right? The book was released February 29th of 2020. And then we had COVID hit like two weeks later. And then, you know, the end of May, we had George Floyd's death. But, but one of the things that I ultimately say is, you know, history is best qualified to reward our research. And America has always been a country for white men who own property. I mean, we're literally watching an 18-year-old boy in Wisconsin wiggle his way out of killing other white males Mm -hmm. because white males have the right to protect themselves when they feel that they are in danger. So it, it becomes a matter of as this world, excuse me, as this country, because the world is is 90% people of color, there's, there's that. But as this country becomes browner and blacker, you're going to see more division because this country was founded for white males who own property and our laws are set up to protect white males who have property. And I think if you don't look at America through that lens, it's going to confuse you. But like when you, I was literally, before we came on, listening to the testimony in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. And despite the fact that I think the prosecutor is a halfwit at best, (laughs) um, it's clear to see that there's so much wiggle room for this kid to get off because there are thousands of laws in the books across states that make it very easy for an armed person to kill an unarmed person. Wow. And there'd be just legal justification for it. So I think to, to circle back to your question, my feeling is that if we don't understand history and if we don't understand how race operates in our laws and how race operates in everything we do from the places we live, where we go to school, who we worship, our names, the names we carry, let me be more specific, the names we carry, mm-hmm. then you then you just run around thinking like, man, how come this keeps happening? Well, it keeps happening because it was set up to do that. And then you are not responding in such a way that would allow you to combat that. And I talk about that very thing under the auspice of, of educating Black children, specifically Black boys. So I know mm-hmm. that was a very roundabout 
answer, but a, a Trump presidency, when you look at it, is no different than a Bush presidency. It's no different than a Bush 41 presidency. They're all the same in terms of what those presidents have tried to do, and they have governed the affairs of white men. Wow. That's so good. Desmond, thank you so much. And please, please tell us where we can find you, uh, Nylinka School Solutions. We can find you online and your social media. Sure. Thanks thanks again for having me. You can find me on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Nylinka. The website is www.nylinka.org. That's N-Y. L-I-N-K-A dot org. You can also find me on Clubhouse. You can find me on LinkedIn at Desmond Williams. If you want to purchase a copy of The Burning House, you can go to Amazon or you can go to the Nylinka website and click on the products tab. So thank you so much, Desmond. This has just been amazing. Thank you so much for all that you do. And uh, we're excited to have you back one day soon. Yeah, thank you for having me and thank you for all of the work that you do and thank you for sharing your platform. Thank you, thank you. Absolutely. You have been listening to Millennial Minds with Yazzie Speaks on DC Radio 96.3 HD4 and online at dcradio.gov. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, peace. You've been listening to Millennial Minds with activist, model, preacher, and public figure, Yasmeen Yazzie Speaks Harrington. For more information, visit yazzieharrington.com or dcradio.gov. 